0: Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein.
1: Good evening. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We have had a number of segments that deal with issues that are not immediately tied to archaeological matters but have some very significant overlap and in a sense give us some sort of a perspective on the archaeology of the future and the archaeology on of a topic that is now becoming very important in archaeological and cultural resource studies and that is the archaeology of the built environment, the existing environment and one of the most complicated built environments. Environments, of course, is the one that we ha- I have right here in my backyard in New York City. And uh, today we will be talking about certain very imaginative elements of the built environment. My guest is Mr. James Ramsey, whose background suggests a very, very eclectic set of interests. And uh, uh, an extensive record of accomplishments. He is a designer, architect, and inventor, and he is the principal of a group called RAD, R A A D, which specializes in creating objects and spaces that emphasize the process of construction. Uh, Knowledge that he has gained and his team have gained from close and continued collaboration with builders. It's a very imaginative. Man- imaginative perspective on the built environment. He uh, studied architecture at Yale uh, and then went on to work as uh, a satellite engineer for NASA and was very involved in a number of design projects. The uh, company that he has established consists of three divisions, which include products, architecture, and urban design. Uh, His main topic of interest for the purposes of the present discussion is the low line and people who live in and about New York City are familiar with the high line and I suspect that the low line is a variation of that theme or connected to it and the low line is in fact an initiative to create the world's largest uh, uh, first underground park and he is also an inventor of solar technology that makes this possible, and I'm sure he will discuss it at greater length. Uh, It's my pleasure to welcome to the program Mr. James Ramsey. James, welcome to the program. Thanks, Joe. So tell me a little bit about your background and how you got involved in merging these aspects of design, architecture, and invention.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, uh, You know what? I think you said it very nicely, and I don't know that I can um, uh, trump anything you said. Um, But, uh, yeah, my background is, as you know, pretty eclectic. And, you know, if I could throw archaeology into the mix, that's something that I've always found interesting, and it's something that um, really kind of directly informs the nature of the Low Line Project, which I guess I'm here to talk about. Um, But in a nutshell, yes, I studied architecture. I also studied science. And, um, uh, for a while there in, you know, in a former lifetime, I had worked on a number of projects, uh, involving satellites going to other planets, et cetera. And, uh, for the last 11 years, let's say, I've been involved in, um, my own design firm, building, building objects, what have you. And I guess most notably, um, I came up with a kooky idea called the low-line, and uh, the low-line is something that uh, brings together any number of disciplines, including archaeology, including physics, solar technologies, art, architecture, um, and it kind of embraces all these things. It's um, Okay, so how did it come about? Um, it's Let me give you sort of the view from 30,000 feet of what it actually is. So the proposal that is the low-line is an idea that we can take this Uh, abandoned and unused uh, trolley terminal, former trolley terminal, underneath the Lower East Side of Manhattan and use uh, advanced solar technology to literally concentrate and irrigate natural sunlight down into this long forgotten space and use that as a tool to both expose uh, this space to the public and also, because we're channeling natural sunlight, to grow stuff down there. And so the idea is that we can use this natural sunlight to transform this rather large um, piece of our uh, infrastructure history into a public space um, uh, for the community and the city at large, really, to use. So um, how does this actually tap into some of these things? Well, in 2008, I don't know if any of you guys remember, um, uh, the economy took a nosedive, and people in my line of work, that is architecture, um, kind of suddenly had a tremendous amount of free time on their hands. And so, um, so uh, you know, this is obviously a, a distressing time for a lot of people, myself included. But um, it was also a time in which I was able to kind of explore all these kooky little interests that I had on the side, sort of see, you know, plant seeds and sort of see what happened with them. And so I began tinkering with some technological aspects that um, were sort of in and around me, that I had sort of dealt with directly myself as well um, in my time at NASA, and actually applied them architecturally um, and sort of started exploring what that actually meant. In or around the same time, I kind of developed this interest in um, sort of the the, the intricacy of the fabric of uh, of New York City, in particular, all those kind of little forgotten relics that surround us every day in the town. Um, and uh, you know, what does that mean? I, I don't know. Just exploring the city, just in great detail, and trying to actually pick up and notice all those tiny little remnants and details from times past, and and sort of uh, think about how uh, they really kind of contribute to making our city's fabric such a such a rich one. Um, and at around that time, I met a former MTA engineer who, uh, started telling me all of his kooky stories about, uh, back in the battle days in the 70s when he, when he was literally going down into some of these spaces and discovering, uh, or rediscovering rather, all of these, uh, crazy archaeological spaces really that are pretty numerous underneath the city. And, um you know, we got to talking about some of these spaces, and one of those spaces was this uh the Williamsburg Trolley Terminal, which is the low line site and um this is a space that is about um let's call it an acre and a half in size it's you know it's the size of a couple football fields, and it's uh underneath one of the most densely populated, busiest portions of Manhattan. Um, and it's been sitting down there unused since 1948 when the city abandoned the streetcar system. And so, you know, just the existence of such a massive, important space that was just underneath one of the most well-known parts of the city that no one knew about kind of blew me away. And so it seemed like a perfect fit, really, for the application of this kind of technological solution. So by sort of combining this really kind of deep fascination with these forgotten elements of the city, with an embrace of uh, these kind of futuristic technologies. That's really kind of how the Low Line Project was born.
1: So where are you with the project right now? How, uh, how is it moving along, and uh, where does it stand? I understand from what I've read that you're looking at designing really a, a subterranean park, basically. I-
2: I mean, that's kind of a, that's kind of how we're describing it openly. Um, in fact, the legal characterization of a park in New York City, uh, demands that it be a space that's actually open to the sky. So, from a technical standpoint, we can't necessarily call it a park, but it's a shorthand. And, um, you know, a park has all sorts of connotations. It's a public space, it involves nature, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what we'd really like to achieve. Is to create a vibrant public space that, um, because it is enclosed uh, and underground, is kind of um, shielded from the weather. So it's a it's a public green space that's available to the public year-round, and so, uh, sort of transform that into a, something that embraces a number of things from uh, you know your sort of more traditional functions from public space, uh, but going into sort of creating a almost altogether new experience that no one's really ever had before. Well, I mean, it is, after all, an underground park, which doesn't exist in this world. And so that's kind of the basic uh, desire for what we'd like the park to be. Now, we've been around, like I said, the, I kind of cooked this up in 2008, so we've been around for a while. I mean, it's a project of enormous complexity and ambition. So it, you know, it took uh, three or four years right off the bat, just even sort of mulling about it and thinking about it and sort of developing the basic idea itself to a point where we could actually even talk about it to the public. And so um, one of the things that began to emerge after the first few years was just how mind-blowing this could be from a design perspective. And for the last several years, we kind of unveiled this to the public in, let's say, 2011, right? So we've been at this publicly speaking for about four years. And in that time, our energies have been primarily focused on gathering the sort of groundswell of public opinion uh, and grassroots support that it's really going to take to really kind of make something out of nothing uh, in a sort of a project type that's never existed before. And so uh, where we are in that process is that we've negotiated with um, the various city agencies, the state, because the state, uh, the MTA of the state, and we... uh, uh, corralled uh, all of um, all of the city agencies, City Hall included, and the MTA to a point where we are uh, discussing how to best uh, transfer the site to us. Um, so that's a process that's been going on this entire time for the last several years. Uh, and in parallel with that, of course, is actually figuring out how the hell to build something like this. And uh, right. Well, right? um, and so, um, you know, there's a number of design challenges from, you know, pure aesthetic design considerations, but um, maybe more importantly, sort of the technical um, oomph to actually be able to execute something like this. So there's been a lot of sort of what you might call uh, research and development behind um, cooking up how we could exactly execute something like this, building prototypes, building models, et cetera, uh, and kind of culminating, hopefully, this summer, uh, in what we're calling the Lowline Lab, which is, um, which is going to be um, a full-scale replica using the exact same technologies that we intend to use in the real Lowline, located in an abandoned warehouse on the Lower East Side, uh, we're going to build a giant solar installation, uh, a very sophisticated and advanced one, that actually is capable of growing living plants um, and it will be open to the public for uh, about
1: six months or so. So let me get, uh, just, just to summarize it so we can visualize it, it was <laughs> a essentially yes, uh, a, a dream that you had, that you visualized, and it's, you spent a good number of years, as, as uh, one can imagine, just conceptualizing and trying to uh, bring it from a dream into some kind of a functional conceptual reality and then of course comes that very arduous project uh, pro- process of trying to implement it and uh, as you said uh, sell it to a tremendous number of regulatory agencies which in new york city is an absolute minefield because you have the well, atm
2: recognizing that yeah
1: It's a minefield. I know this because we do a lot of archaeology here, straight-up archaeology, and that's a challenge in and of itself. So you have to deal with probably eight, nine, maybe ten regulatory agencies who are not always on the same page. So take us through the process of the regulatory uh, issues and how you're actually going to sell this thing as a concept. And then I want to ask you going forward... Uh, about funding and, and how you can get and mobilize uh, mobilize the funds and, and, and the personnel and the organizational strategies to do this.
2: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, uh, yes, as you know, it is um, what you might call a minefield out there. And New York is um, an amazing place full of all sorts of incredibly exciting creative energy, but it oftentimes takes quite a while to get something done, right? Oh Very um, much so, yeah. Yeah. And so uh with a site like the Williamsburg Trolley Terminal, you know, let's start with the fact that it's actually a city-owned property, but it falls under an, uh, under the MPA's master lease. It also is beneath an active roadway and an active uh, pedestrian plaza. Um, it's, uh, it's, it, it actually physically touches an active um, uh, subway station. And so right there, right off the bat, you know, that's a dozen agencies uh, that are involved in this whole process. And in order to sort of navigate that entire thing, we've had to sort of um, reach out separately, really, um, to almost every single one of these agencies and gradually try and, you know, tighten the circle here to get everyone on the same page, sort of sitting at a table together and of the same mind that everyone, you know, sort of wants to make this happen. Now... That's it. i got to say, um, from the absolute top to the absolute um, sort of bottom of the pyramid, um, everyone that we've talked to in both city and state government has been really kind of incredibly supportive personally. But, uh, you know, it takes oftentimes a lot more than that to shake the tree and make something happen. And so um, just sort of going through that due process, and I never thought I would ever have to do anything like this or hire a lobbyist or anything like that. But it's been a learning experience that, um, you know, sort of forced us to sort of navigate the oftentimes treacherous waters of political realities um, to try and get everyone to be of the same mind about this. Now, that said, there's also a very strong element to this that uh, involves the community for which this project is meant to serve. And, um, you know, with a couple of small exceptions, I think that the response um, locally has been overwhelmingly positive. You know, we're talking about a neighborhood, and I don't need to tell you this, but um, you know, the Lower East Side is the first neighborhood where uh, most 19th century and early 20th century immigrants first came when they came to America. Yes. And uh, about 100 years ago, it was the most densely populated place on Earth. And, uh, you know, all, uh, along with that, it was a pretty poor neighborhood and one that kind of got run over by Robert Moses. And so the end result of that is kind of, um, that we have this very sort of thick, rich, vibrant cultural landscape packed into a small area. Mm-hmm. But that is, but it's an area that has been sort of, um, let's say, uh, consistently overlooked. Uh, by the powers that be in terms of the usual sorts of public amenities um, that serve as a community, like, for example, public space and green space. And so the potential that we're offering to really kind of transform what's otherwise a slightly depressing corridor along Delancey Street and transform it into something that really has, um, uh, for lack of a better word, a landmark and a sort of a cultural facility and a public space for people to enjoy year-round I think people have really reacted strongly to that. It's resonated with quite a lot of people and um, really become uh, sort of a a positive element that people could rally around.
1: We will be back with James Ramsey, who is the designer and conceptual creator of The Low Line, right after these words. Uh, Stay with us. Don't go away. We'll resume the discussion in a few moments. Stay tuned.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
2: Inside Out is the voice of the inner revolution that is bringing positive change to our planet. Discover the amazing transformations already taking place from faraway lands to right here under our noses. Meet guests who are shaking things up for the better and gain insights and courage to help you become all that you can be. Co hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inside Out the Inner Revolution airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel.
3: Do you love to travel? Now, that's a silly question, isn't it? Who doesn't love to travel? Join Lindsay T. Boyd, a.k.a. the Dreamweaver, for Travel Time. A professional travel agent, Lindsay will spotlight the world of travel. From maps and other travel tools to make your trips easier, to your rights as a passenger, to different aspects of travel, such as sports, faith, or experiential vacations. Travel Time with Lindsay T. Boyd, Dreamweaver, airs live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Tune in to the Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time.
0: listening to indiana jones myth reality and 21st century archaeology with dr joseph schuldenrein to be a part of our discussion today please call 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 or send an email to indiana jones myth reality at gmail.com now back to the program
1: Good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are. This is uh, Indiana Jones Myth, Reality and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's program is sort of a foray into areas that are uh, very contemporary and not immediately associated with archaeology, but certainly explore uh, a beautiful intersection, if you will, or conflation of the above-ground and underground resources of uh, of urban areas. James Ramsey is a designer, architect, and inventor, and is the head of an operation called RAD which uh, specializes in creating objects and spaces that emphasize the uh, process of construction. And he's very involved in a project that is called the low line. And uh, those of you who are from this area are familiar with what we call the high line and the low line. Is a is essentially an underground park that uh, james Ramsey, that, which is essentially a brainchild of James Ramsey, and he was talking about how uh, this underground park that is presumably powered by solar energy and essentially giving us a green space underneath the ground surface. Uh, is uh, sort of a a peek into the future of how to utilize green green spaces in the subsurface and it's sort of a masterful idea and we were talking about how he's actually gone about Uh, creating this and and I guess the first few years were based on conceptualization and creativity and James if you could pick it up we were talking about how you actually for lack of a better word sell this concept to regulatory agencies and to public interest groups who uh, clearly have an interest in making this work and and I guess you've selected uh, the, the abandoned Williamsburg trolley car station um, which uh, is, is, was an area that, of course, belongs to, belonged to the Metropolitan Transit Association for a very long time. And there are many such uh, underground locations uh, because the trolleys were abandoned in the city in the late 1940s. So why don't you pick up on where you are in the planning stages and how you see yourself uh, actually implementing this project and when you, you, when you can actually see it, it come to fruition.
2: Yeah, I'd love that. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, okay. Uh, one of the things that I uh, had touched upon previously was simply that, um, yes, it, was a, it, it has been a pretty complicated process corralling all the players in city and state government to come to the table uh, to sort of join around this project. Um, but but at the same time, we've sort of experienced, luckily, um, really kind of a groundswell of support from uh, the community and the city at large. Now in order to uh, sort of best execute this sort of thing and uh, actually uh, to raise funds to actually create this thing, um, and, uh, we've, we've followed somewhat in the organizational footsteps of the Highline organization. And, you know, what those guys did was they formed a nonprofit entity in order to raise funds uh, uh, and uh, execute that project. And, well, look, I mean, they kind of wrote the book on it. They, that kind of came out of nowhere. Ex and like they um, were able to really do something pretty astounding and impressive um, uh, over the years. And so, what we've done uh, uh, is really kind of in those footsteps is to create a nonprofit organization and to use that as a vehicle by which we're able to sort of gather a board of supporters around us. Uh, a a board of advisors, uh, you know, basically experts in science, technology, design, community, uh, etc., and uh, to begin the uh, long process of raising enough money to actually build this thing. And so we've had actually kind of a startling degree of success with that. Um, For whatever reason, um, the project itself is one that's kind of touched people's imaginations and maybe kind of touched the a cultural nerve um, uh, right now, and uh, people uh, have gotten really excited about the project.
1: And so where do you see, where is it at right now? Where do you see it, uh, or, or do you anticipate any major roadblocks? What about, what about funding? Funding is real critical to this sort of thing. How, how, where are you at with that?
2: Well, we're doing really well in terms of funding. We've uh, you know doubled or tripled uh, what we've been able to raise every year that we've actually been in existence as a as an organization, and uh, we have a lot of homework to do in advance of the real project. And that's kind of uh, we're just we're trying to do this in the sort of the correct steps, the correct process here. And so, um, you know, one of the things that we're doing this year is actually building a living, functioning lab that's open to the public, to sort of showcase what we're able to do with life and horticulture. Um, and simultaneously, by gaining site control, which we hope to gain uh, at some point very soon, that begins to open the door to the actual uh, fundraising of the actual capital project, right, which is, which is, uh, which is a sort of much larger deal than uh, anything we've been engaged in so far. So what we're looking at is... Um, finishing out the year, having sort of accomplished all of our aims in terms of our due diligence and homework, and go into next year um, with the site in our control, uh, which gives us the confidence then to begin asking for larger sums of money uh, to be donated to the project so we can actually build the construction of the project.
1: So who owns the land at present? Who, owns, who, who has the rights to the property itself right now?
2: Well, it's currently uh, controlled by the MTA.
1: So the MTA has it... And from what i 'm gathering they 've already bought into your idea, and they are essentially going to work with you in terms of uh, your plans for the project. Obviously, they have a certain amount of regulatory control over what gets done and Are you saying that at this point you're almost at, at you you 've done the plans already, do you have formal engineering plans for it, and second? Uh, how close are you to actually implementing some kind of construction here?
2: Well, I mean, look, I don't want to put words into the MTA's mouth. Um, no, but, no, I understand uh, that that's, yes. Right. Um, yeah, but no. they've been supportive and extremely helpful uh, so far. And uh, if you ask me, I think we're getting very close to just sort of hammering something out. Um, and, yes, we do have detailed uh, design, engineering analysis, engineering drawings, et cetera, um, uh, that are sort of the, the germ that will allow us to actually construct this thing. What we would like to do is to break ground in about 2018. So that's still a few years away, but we need a running head start in terms of all the design work that needs to go into a project like this, as well as all the fundraising.
1: Of course. So all of these activities, presumably, are going to be running in parallel so that uh, you can. They are, yeah. Yeah, you have to kill several, uh, several birds in, with one stone here. It's a very difficult thing, but it seems like you're really well on your way to doing this. Now, there are a number of places like this in the city, um, uh, abandoned trolley yards in particular. Um,
2: I'm so glad you brought them up. Okay, yeah.
1: Yeah because and and it's very interesting because um right now especially in this age of sustainability um there seems to be a resurgence of interest in the trolleys themselves because trolley uh transportation in most urban areas, especially here in New York, was a very clean way of uh, inner-city transportation. And uh, it seems to me that this is a very, very logical place to do this sort of thing. Why don't you talk a little bit about any other trolley yards or any other kinds of potential areas that might be revived along these lines?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, based on our, you know, and look, I'm not an archaeologist, but based on our research, um, (laughs) um, we kind of found out that there's something insane, like 13 acres of unused space underneath the surface of the city. You know, and I'm sure not all of it is completely cataloged. Um, The city is... Literally perforated uh, below the surface with all sorts of interesting things, from infrastructure to recreational things, et cetera. Especially in the older neighborhoods, especially in Manhattan, which is the densest part of New York. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's very interesting that we could explore this sort of avenue um, of potentially being able to let's call it reactivate uh, some of these spaces. The low line is certainly the largest one we've come across or seen, um, but there are so many other ones just all throughout the city, not not necessarily trolley or streetcar related, um, but uh, maybe they were depots for um, subway-related activity um, or unused mezzanines, all sorts of things.
1: And your uh, your explorations, did you do some canvassing of areas that were likely to be able to sustain this type of project? I mean, did you come across this area and then say, okay, this is where we want to do our project, or did you see the area and say, you know, here's an interesting place to try something new? And I'm wondering about that as well. How did?
2: Honestly, with the Williamsburg-Carley Terminal, um, it was in a lot of ways kind of a perfect Storm, like this confluence of various factors. Um, Not only is it a super vibrant neighborhood full of sort of artistic energy and sort of and poor thinking, um, but uh, you know, this space also happened to exist there. So, you know, it was the space that first grabbed my attention just because it's so massive and it's beautiful. Um, If you you have the opportunity to check it out online, it's pretty cool. Um, But you know, just taking a step back, a quick step back. And seeing what the context of this space actually was, where you know it's a meeting point of five different ethnicities, and underneath the Lancy Street in the neighborhood that was kind of largely torn down by Moses, um, it had all the sort of wonderful benchmarks that made um, creating a new type of public space really all the more appealing.
1: Yeah, um, you know, you make mention of 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 Robert Moses, who's now uh, for those of us who are those those listeners who are not from this area. Robert Moses was one of the. Revolutionary figures in uh, in urban design, whose uh, legacy is uh, really sort of being questioned at this point, and uh, he was one of the pers- people who essentially visualized uh, the city as being sort of this incredible maze of transportation, and he looked at the automobile as sort of revolutionizing uh, transportation. not just in New York but all over the world and now we're going back to a period where uh, it's simply becoming not a sustainable operation to continue expanding uh, automobile transportation and and people like yourself, uh, James, are, are, are really sort of looking at alternatives and I think that there are other ventures like yours. Are you involved in any other projects that have similar kinds of objectives or similar kinds of uh, so let's call them revolutionary concepts of inner city, inner city development?
2: Well, I mean, I think that, um, well, look, I'm in contact with any number of people like that because it's, it's almost sort of a community that started to find each other. Right. Um, if, you, if, if you think about this in really broad terms, right now, though, um, you know, we're living in a time in which the population is growing at an astounding rate throughout the world. And people are starting to clump into our urban centers and then starting to create these uh, megacities. You might even sort of say that we're living in this new age of the city. And I think along with that, there's come this really new found, uh, sort of, um, newfound sense of uh, optimism about uh, what we can do with our city. And, uh, you know, I think back to when I was a kid growing up in New York and how bleak People's attitudes toward, towards um, towards the city were. This is the complete opposite that we're experiencing right now. It's a sort of a can-do attitude, a grassroots kind of can-do attitude about what we can achieve and to, uh, think about in terms of how we can the little things we can do to make our city uh, more livable and a, and a nicer place. And so, the low line is certainly in the category of things that. Um, um, are trying to use innovation as a means of contributing to that. But I think that um, there's all sorts of things like that of all sorts of scale, you know, be it, you know, things called, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of guerrilla gardening, but it's people just sort of uh, going into, like, literally cracks in the sidewalk or abandoned lots and creating gardens and stuff like that. Or uh, on the mega scale, you know, projects like the Highline, um, uh, which are incredibly ambitious. But I think... Throughout almost every scale of, uh, of urbanism, I think we're sort of experiencing this, um, uh, this creative energy in terms of uh, the way we think about uh, modifying the city and making it a little bit nicer.
1: We'll be back in a few minutes with uh, a continuation of our discussion with Jim, James Ramsey on his very ambitious project entitled The Low Line, which is a development project Uh, underneath the surface of the Lower East Side in New York City, and we'll be back shortly. Stay tuned. We're
2: making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
0: Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
3: Up Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety, every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: This is Joe Schuldenrein with a very unique segment of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's discussion is with a very creative designer, architect, and inventor named James Ramsey, who has developed and pioneered a project called the Low Line, which is an initiative to create the world's first underground park, And he has visualized and started to implement this project with the use of solar technology and developing essentially an abandoned New York City uh, trolley terminal into a very, very vibrant green space powered by natural sunlight and solar energy, and James, we've been discussing the evolution of your project, the initial design, and conceptualization of your project. Let's talk about what it's ultimately going to look like, and how you see it uh, when it's finally realized, because it looks like if everything bounces right, and of course that's a big if, uh, you may actually have this and you may actually make this work. So, what <laughs> what are we going to look? What are we going to see? Say, you said construction potential in twenty eighteen. Where are we going to be? Say, in twenty twenty two.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it, it, the um, I think it's interesting to note that the uh, that uh, that you evoke Indiana Jones in the title of this show. Um, I got to say, when I first got permission to go down into the low line space. Um, uh, when I sort of walked through all these back uh, back office MTA tunnels and popped out into this crazily large brooding space, I felt like a little bit like Indiana Jones. Um, right. the, there was this sort of blast of air. I looked up, and there was this huge cavern before me, right? Right, and, um, right. It was kind of awe-inspiring. Um, and in a lot of ways, uh, you know, that sensation of, Walking into this space and just like getting goosebumps from uh, like sort of this personal discovery that this was just kind of lurking down there underneath the busy streets of Manhattan.
1: Yeah, yeah. Something that
2: informs the design process or informs the way uh, we all thought about the design. And so, um, I, 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 you know, there's a, there was a, just as a digression, there was a parallel there's like sort of a parallel experience. Did you ever get to go down the Atlantic Tunnel with Bob Diamond?
1: Yes, yes, yes. Bob Diamond, he's a unique character in city lore. He is a character, uh, yeah. with, uh, You mean with the Brooklyn, uh, with the Atlantic Yards?
2: You got it. You got it. I mean, it's the only parallel that I can draw upon for my experience walking into that low-line space for the first time. In other words, I walked in, it was kind of a different temperature. It was this huge muscular architecture of arches and columns and rivets and cobblestones even. And uh there was just sort of spread out in front of me before uh, really kind of into the distance. couldn't even see I couldn't even see the other end. And so uh in terms of how the low line might eventually be uh designed or experienced, I think it's incredibly important to maintain um part of that sensibility of uh of uh, really of discovery and exploration, and um, to take this incredibly uh, muscular uh, old space, and to have that held in a sort of in, in tension, with uh, with these futuristic elements that I'm sli- uh, snaking into it that are creating, that are shooting light and almost look like liquid metal, and uh, and are, are are creating this sort of uh, this verdant uh, plant growth. And so I think those two things can coexist in complete juxtaposition to each other, and in doing so really um, uh, make each other stronger really, and they can sort of reinforce and re-emphasize each other uh, just by existing in a certain in a certain way next to each other and so when I think about uh, what the experience might be like going down this little low line, um, well for one thing, we have a design proposed for the entry, which I encourage everyone to just look up or whatever but um, it involves uh, peeling back the sidewalk, literally peeling it upward and penetrating down into that low-line space. And as you do so, really kind of passing by all the various historical strata of the, of the, the, the uh, New York City street sandwich, right? Starting with the cobblestones underneath the macadam and then going past that through the plumbing and the electrical and the sewer and eventually sort of ending up at the, sort of the oldest portion which is this tunnel itself. Right. And um, uh, I would like for, for the visitor experience to be one in which you are kind of uh, cognizant of that, of that march through the city's strata into the city's deep history and, uh, and, and uh, creating that, that sort of perverse sensation of seeing that next to this, uh, this glowing, bright, futuristic stuff. And so as you wander through the low line, uh, I wanted to feel a little bit like you're exploring something, that you're going and wandering through this uh, this, this uh, jungle, like you're doing some sort of urban spelunking in uh, uh-huh. the depth of this place and discovering all sorts of interesting things.
1: Well, you know, it's uh, it's interesting, but. Uh, before we get into this entire question of what you see, it's actually going to look like. You're right. You've created essentially, and they created when they designed this tunnel, a micro environment that is really essentially no different than a cave because a cave. Um, is a place which uh, is a sort of a self-contained little environment. It has its own temperature. It has its own moisture regime because it's all regulated by the enclosures and by the uh, the atmospheric and sub subterranean processes that go on in the cave. And and what you're talking about is exactly the same. And so you obviously have seen this and you you've conceptualized this because otherwise you know you wouldn't have these grandiose visions of using solar power, solar energy to power all this. So <laughs> But I, I really want to see where, what's it going to look like. What do you see it looking
2: like? Well, uh, uh, have you ever been to a cenote in Mexico? Of course, I have. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's kind of like a cross between a like a, a, a cave and a and a, a dripping jungle from prehistory or something. And so yeah,
1: and that's exactly what it is, and that's why these are sustainable environments.
2: I think that that's a pretty good uh, parallel to the environment that we'd like to create. If that doesn't sound too crazy.
1: But, I mean, just going into the dynamic of it, because you're going to have people walking in and out, and you're going to have to supply, uh, essentially, a certain type of an infrastructure to make this thing work. I mean, any kind of a park, any any uh, land park, surface park, has to do that. And you have to obviously think about all those things. And presumably, you've done so to some degree, yeah?
2: Yeah, and I, I think we can have our cake and eat it, too, in this instance. It's a big enough space. That uh, the way we're envisioning it, anyway, is that we can take a, the you know, let's call it half the space, and devote that to um, sort of almost like a flexible public plaza kind of park space um, that that that, you know, that people can use for any number of reasons, uh, purposes, et cetera. Um, and in the remaining other 50 percent of the space, have it be this kind of adventuresome, um I don't know, Ramble. I don't know if you're familiar with the Ramble in Central Park. Of course, but, yeah. Um, yeah, it was Olmsted. When Olmsted designed Central Park, he thought of the Ramble as the sort of the uh, conceptual beating heart of Central Park, and it's a did, It's, yes. a, it's yes. a, at the middle, and it um, it is as wild and woolly as he could get with uh, designing a park, and it's kind of a transportive experience. Sometimes you don't even feel like you're in New York at all. And so if we can create this kind of transportive experience where people don't even think they're in New York anymore, but they're in some alternate universe, then I think we've done our job.
1: And that's what you env- that's what you envision. So right now you're thinking um, you're obviously you've started to get some funding. Um, you presumably, and you had mentioned this, so it's not presumably, but you already have design plans. Because I would imagine in the, in this kind of an underground context, you have to be extremely careful about reinforcing walls and interior structures. Although to some degree that's already existing, right?
2: Yeah, I mean that stuff's already there. There's a couple. Not so great, you know, structural elements that we would want to improve. Um, just you know, for, just to feel a little bit safer about things. But yeah, it's already there. So yeah, and
1: and, and you say you're well along with that. Um, and does this does have you approached one of the major organizations that you have to deal with in the city? And a lot of people don't know this is the Landmarks Preservation Commission. Do they have have they had any input into this? Well,
2: I mean, it's not a landmark. But, you know, we have brought in um, uh, preservationists to analyze what our assets actually are and take a look through it. Because um, it's, as you noted, um, one of the few remaining pieces of that streetcar infrastructure that's still intact in New York City. It's got these catenary lines where they carry the electricity. It's got cobblestones as well. Belgian blocks, technically. uh, Right, the the Belgian blocks,
1: of course, yes. Yes,
2: Yeah. And uh, it's got all this sort of amazing remnant properties. But, you know, when I first went in there, it was littered in rail spikes, and they had one of those uh, little, um, you know, those, I don't even know what they're called, but it's like a hand cart that, that goes on the rails, and you pump it like buggy pony. Uh, I mean, yeah. Right. yeah. So there's all yeah. kinds of wild stuff in there. And uh, it's important to us that we maintain and embrace all that remnant stuff, too.
1: Yeah, because those things have to be preserved. Is it accessible now, or do you uh, how do, do, can one go in and out, or not,
2: or is it It is out? rather inaccessible. In fact, um, the only real way to get into it is uh, through some MTA back of house uh, corridors.
1: And uh, one has to get a permit to do that, or how does that work?
2: Well, there's a pretty elaborate set of procedures and permissions in place that uh, that uh, you have to. Uh, pass through in order to actually gain access to that
1: space. Now, uh, in terms of your own internal organization, are you working with other groups, or do you have a self-sufficient group in your own particular firm that is exclusively involved in this? Are you collaborating with other interest groups who uh, who are also who also have a particular aim or objective to make this project work?
2: Well, let me uh, let me start by saying that it's incredibly important to us as an organization that um, we keep our ears open um, and garner and and execute as much community input as humanly possible. Um, Because you know, ultimately, the end users of a space like this should definitely have a say in in what it ends up being. um, Like, period. Uh, That said, you know, you sort of listed my background at the beginning of this show. I do a lot of things, but I don't do everything. I don't have that much humor. So, yes, we're definitely collaborating with any number of organizations um, to uh, help flesh out our our skills where they're needed most. Um, We're working with uh, the engineering firm Arup. They're um, uh, sort of a multinational engineering firm that does all kinds of crazy, awesome stuff. Uh, We're working with... uh, uh, a solar technology partner called Sun Portal, located in Korea. Uh, we're working with, uh, a couple landscape architects, including Signe Nielsen, who, um, was this, the brains behind the, uh, the, uh, Hudson River Park design stuff. Um, we're working with, well, I could, I could go on and on, but we have any number of collaborators that have brought, uh, each, uh, each, each of whom has, has brought their own, uh, amazing set of specialty skills to the table.
1: And so, everybody, so you're working together with them. I would imagine that's a very uh, complicated coordination effort as well. Who's doing there's what?
2: Of, there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, that is for sure.
1: Yeah, and that can make it very difficult as well. And you were optimistically looking at, and uh, knock on wood here, uh, a construction initiation period, say around 2018?
2: Uh, God willing.
1: Right. Of course, these things have a tendency to get a life of their own and a timeline of their (laughs) own. Um, And anything that's done in the subsurface in New York City, I can tell you from personal experience, is an incredibly difficult venture to implement because... Uh, um, You know
2: what? I would love to talk to you about that sometime. Yeah.
1: I will tell you this, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the Second Avenue Subway Project that uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that one, the one that's going to be running on Second Avenue, that has been... In design for over a hundred years, <laughs> which yeah, I'm not saying to intimidate you, because it's the classic example of, uh, and, and I'm sure you you have no issue like that. I'm I'm I, hopefully you don't have issues like that, but because it's such a you know such a major municipal venture, and there have been so many changes politically in the infrastructure of the city, and 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 how the dynamics. Are working. That uh, these are very challenging operations, but it certainly seems as if you have this very as as much under control as possible. You're looking at a very specific sort of situation, and I think that's really good. We only have a couple of minutes left, James. Uh, Any other words that you would like to uh, project or ideas that you'd like to leave the audience with before we uh, end the show?
2: Well, just building on what you just said, um, yeah, I I mean, I I would like to think that we have this as, you know, quote, under control as we possibly could, uh, all things considered. But, you know, as I noted before, um, we are kind of living in this time of crazy urban optimism and um, call it optimism, enthusiasm or foolishness or whatever have you, but um, it's what uh, I and my partners have chosen to do with ourselves, and we really feel very strongly that this is going to be something inspiring and amazing for the city as a whole. And, you know, also at the same time, um, uh, uh, something of a landmark uh, for a neighborhood that really just kind of doesn't have one. And so um, I'd like to think that um, this is just our little part in making the city a little bit better.
1: I want to thank my very special guest, James Ramsey, who is an extremely ambitious and enthusiastic <laughs> designer, architect, and inventor, and who seems to certainly have achieved a, 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 a tremendous amount in his career and his vision for an underground uh, park in. Called the low line certainly seems to have gotten off of square one and we wish you all the success in the world to make this oh, a successful so adventure and in this age of sustainability i think uh, there's nothing better than what you're doing thank you so much james
2: well, thank you it was great to have you.
1: and uh, we will talk to you all again next week with another episode of indiana jones myth reality and 21st century archaeology until then good evening
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.